Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That far in God's word. Today's passage is a classic passage throughout theology. It's a classic passage for those of us in the Reformed community because it expresses so clearly covenant theology. Covenants in the Bible are solemn agreements that bind two people to each other in defined relationships with specific duties for both persons or both ends. We got a sample of that when we read the Ten Commandments together. It's a set of expectations for what God will do and what we will do. We are, according to the Old Covenant, really in trouble because each person has sin. Each person receives death, as we talked about from the previous passage. It's like being stuck in exile without hope. But yet there is hope. And so this passage announces the new hope, that God begins verse 31 by saying, behold, the days are coming, similar to what he had said in verse 27, verse 28, and verse 29, announcing that something future is now being announced, something is coming that is good. Behold, the days are coming. During their exile was a wonderful time for God to announce this new covenant to replace death with life, to replace exile with going home, and to replace despair with building hope. It brings us to our main point. God once for all solved the problem of his people's recalcitrant, which means stubbornly repeated sin, and by renewing the covenant and placing himself on both sides of it. The problem with the old covenant was not the covenant, it was the people. You remember the story of how Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments and comes down the mountain? By the time Moses came down the mountain and before they had a time to actually enact the covenant and celebrate receiving it, Moses came down the mountain with the tablets of stone and the first commandment listed on those stones was broken by the people at the base of the mountain. Before Moses even arrived back down, they had made an idol out of gold in the shape of a calf, as you remember. So Moses, in anger, broke the stone tablets. Is that not breaking the covenant? But what happened next? In Exodus 34, with amazing patience, God reissued the same covenant with a new set of tablets of stone, again, exactly the same. What grace is there? What mercy is that? But guess what happened next? The recalcitrant sin means it keeps on being repeated, and so the people broke the law again. Later, as the book of Moses tells us from chapters 7, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews tells us from chapters 7 to 10, through Christ, God gave a better version of his covenant with better promises based on a better sacrifice offered by a better high priest in a better sanctuary. We get a better hope leading us to a better country, our heavenly home. What is new 
What is better about the new covenant? What is it that we are to understand, not about the covenant given once and broken and given exactly repeated again, not about Exodus 34, but about Jeremiah 31? What is in the new covenant that's new? There's three things. One is unbreakable, two is internal, and three, it's universal. Those are our three points. So we move to our first point. The covenant became unbreakable. Unlike the old covenant with their fathers, which they broke. So this phrase in verse 31, a new covenant, I need you to know this. Maybe you take this little tidbit along with you. That phrase, a new covenant, that you see in verse 31, occurs one time in all of the Old Testament. It's right here, obviously. New can mean brand new, like a 2022 Tesla, or it can mean renewed or restored, like finding an old, broken-down 1965 Ford Mustang and fixing it up. It can be made new. And the title of the sermon shows you what's happening here. The covenant made new. The covenant made new. It's restoring the covenant that was broken down. That God is making a new covenant, but it's not making something that is brand new or that is contrary to the old covenant, but rather the new covenant has both similarities and dissimilarities with the old covenant. In some ways, using factory original parts, that Mustang you're restoring would have genuine 1965 condition in certain of its operations. But in other ways, your Mustang will be better than ever because you are forced to use new technology and new parts. And so here God is promising a new covenant in verse 31 with a fundamental difference from the old covenant while at the same time having fundamental similarity to the old covenant. In verse 32, God explained, He will make a new covenant that is not like the covenant that God made with their fathers. Verse 32 goes on to explain how it's not like to specify that the covenant that God had made with their fathers was broken. Despite God being their husband. Well, God needs to fix that. In the new covenant, he needs to set out a covenant that cannot possibly be broken. And so that's our first point, that the new covenant is unbreakable. The covenant becomes unbreakable. That's part of the blessing. That's part of the big announcement. That's the glory and benefit of the new covenant. It can't be broken. The old covenant was broken because on the people's end of the agreement, they kept sinning. We've read about that in chapter after chapter in Jeremiah. The Old Testament is filled with the story of God's people sinning. Our lives are filled with God's people sinning. We understand that people break their walk with God, their covenant with God. The old covenant was broken on the people's end. How did God respond? The specifications were right within the covenant. If you respond, I will cut you off. If you sin, I will cut you off. But did God cut them off? Instead, he announces this promise and says he will take the covenant and make it new in order to compensate for what was already done wrong by the people, cleansing them of their sins, but then also to create something that cannot be broken. By saying that the new covenant is unbreakable, we can say that the new covenant is everlasting. But I need to save that for two weeks from today, Lord willing. We'll talk about the everlasting nature of the covenant from the following verses. But Jesus keeps the covenant on our behalf, and he lives forever. Since he's the head of the covenant and he lives forever, of course, the 
duration of the covenant is everlasting. It's a covenant that cannot be broken, which implies already that it will never be broken two days from now, two years from now, 2,000 years from now. It is an everlasting covenant that cannot be broken because it has been perfected by Christ who lives forever. So that's our first point. The covenant became unbreakable. Our second point is that the covenant became internal. We get this from verse 33. I'll read that in a moment. Let me introduce it. The law written on their hearts now, and knowing the Lord, unlike the old covenant where the law was written on stone. You remember the old covenant. I just was explaining it, how it had been external. I told the story about how Moses came down the mountain with the covenant engraved on tablets of stone. Is that not external? It's not inside of them. It's outside of them, right? External. While the covenant was external, their sin was internal. That's hardly a fair um, competition, right? The, the sin is coming out of their hearts, and there's the covenant on tablets of stone. How do I say the sin's coming out of their hearts? Remember in, in Jeremiah 17, verse 1, when we, we studied that God said that sin was, quote, engraved on the tablet of their heart, Jeremiah 17. 1. Why would he use the phrase tablet? To remind us how God wrote the covenant on tablets of stone. Here you have the external covenant on tablets of stone, and here you have sin engraved on the tablets of their hearts. Who's going to win? In the new covenant, the law of God needed to become internalized to compete with and to conquer that sin written on their hearts. In the new covenant, they would be invited to love God as they never could before, to love God from inside. The Shema was a famous quote, it's a Hebrew word that means here. It's occurring in Deuteronomy 6.4 where we have that beautiful phrase, to love God from inside, from their heart and soul and strength and mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. You've heard of that phrase, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. It summarizes the commands of the old covenant, but the people weren't doing it. Why not? You ready to rip the Band-Aid off and explain and understand really the truth about why not? Because they didn't want to. Inside, you do what you want, don't you? If you want to drive the speed limit, you do. If you don't want to drive the speed limit, you don't. What's ripping the Band-Aid off and telling yourself truth about that? It's because I want to or because I don't want to. The problem with the old covenant is the people didn't want to keep it. They wanted to sin against God. They did what they wanted to do. That heart-level problem, that internal sin problem, is what God overcame in the new covenant. That's why this passage is glorious. That's why the gospel is precious to us. When God would place his law inside of the people, they become, if you will, like the temple. What is the temple? The temple is the place that has the law of God on stone tablets stored inside of it. And now the people themselves has the law of God on the tablets of their hearts stored inside of them. They become the temple. But the new covenant had one big difference. The people were living. The temple is just a building of stone. The people are the living temple of God. As Paul later describes in 2 Corinthians 3.3 and as Peter later writes in 1 Peter 2.5, the covenant was internalized. The people were the temple of God, the living temple now we read this truth in verse 33, as I've set it up for you. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see how it sounds just like the old covenant, I'll be their God, and they shall be my people? We're familiar with that phrase, but it has these new dynamics that we've never heard before. I will write my law in their hearts. I will put my law within them. In what way is the new covenant made new? God did something new here about the people's side of the covenant, the people's end of the agreement, the weak side, if you will, the weak link is the people. God is now reaching across. His side is okay. He's always upheld his covenant. He's a faithful God, always has been, always will be. But on the people's end, he's now reaching across to the people's side of the covenant and solving the problem. He's putting his word in the people's hearts, and with his word in their hearts, they actually have God inside of their hearts. The word of God is God. The name of God is God. To have God in their hearts is new. What's new and improved is that God would be on both ends of the covenant. Once God did that, then he is their God and they are his people in the sense of Jesus Christ having come, us believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and taking his word and spirit into our hearts, we become individually and collectively the temple of God. We have God on our side of the covenant. He goes on in verse 34, the first half, to explain it this way. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That's an entire reference to the prophetic office. We need Moses to tell us, listen, this is how to relate to God. We need Jeremiah and all the other prophets to tell us, listen, this is how to know God. This is how to relate to God. But he says, no longer shall you need one to teach his neighbor or brother. Why? Verse 34 goes on to explain why. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's new. That's brand new. That's something where we're saying the office of prophet is now open to all in a sense of being able to read God's word and be able to have God inside of you in terms of his law on your heart and therefore you come to know God. To come to know God as each person and not just come to know God whatever Moses says, come to know God whatever Jeremiah says, but each person walking with God individually, each person to know God, that's beauty. That's blessing. That's new. That is God getting closer. That's gospel truth. They no longer need their to teach their neighbor or learn from their neighbor, teach their brother or learn from their brother because they will all know God. The new covenant fits the theme that we've seen in Jeremiah. All the way back in Jeremiah 1 verse 10, which I keep referencing because it's instructive for the whole book. Jeremiah 1 verse 10 said that God would tear down. It means that he would take people away into exile, distanced from God, see? And then God would build up, which is taking the people away from exile back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city so that they can be with God and God's city and God's temple. They're drawing close to God again. They get to know God. Instead of not knowing God and being distanced from God, they are close to God and know him. And this is all new. For God to bring his people out of Egypt in the Exodus was not enough. For God to bring his people out of Babylon and the restoration was not enough. These are suggestive and these will be fulfilled in those ways in real time in history, but they're pointing beyond. It's pointing beyond the exile and it's pointing beyond the restoration. It's pointing beyond the new Jerusalem. It's pointing uh, the Jerusalem that would be rebuilt. It's pointing beyond the temple that would be rebuilt and it's pointing ahead 
to Christ and to his church. In order to fulfill the words about building up his people, God wrote his words onto their hearts. And for the first time, the people will obey God by choice rather than by compulsion. The attitude of apostasy is replaced by the attitude of loyalty to God. For those of us who've been studying through the book of Jeremiah, this is ever so refreshing. This is brand new. This is a, a complete turn. It's a fundamental change in the book. So what have we seen? It's unbreakable. It's internal. We have one more, that it's universal. It comes from verse 34 at the end, where we read, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the new covenant, God is gifting the whole body of Christ with Christ himself, meaning that we all receive his forgiveness and his obedience, unlike the old covenant, which demanded individual obedience as a condition of each one receiving God's blessing. Let me break this down. After God put himself on both sides of the covenant agreement, God would forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. It reminds us of how covenants are set up, how Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6, this, the Lord will circumcise your hearts so that you will love the Lord with all your heart and soul and may live. Uh, how, how come that can't happen? How? How is that supposed to happen? Because the covenant is not an exchange of commodities. The covenant is not some merely legal contract saying, you give to God these holy behaviors, and then God will give you these blessings on earth followed by these blessings in heaven. Exchange of commodities. If you'll do this, excuse me, if you'll do this, then God will give you those things. That is a covenant of works. That is a commodity exchange. The covenant is not an exchange of commodities. It's not a contract of duties, not an agreement about performance of both parties in the agreement. No, this covenant is new. This covenant is more. This covenant is an exchange of persons. It's an exchange of persons. That's what's new about the new covenant. It's the covenant made new by God promising to give his son in exchange for us. Jesus is the new covenant. This is nothing less than the announcement of the gospel, the announcement of the New Testament, the announcement of the coming of the Messiah. The old covenant, you see, stipulated obedience as a condition of blessing, but nobody could obey. Whereas the new covenant, what is new is that God grants obedience of Christ as a gift to us. It's the alien righteousness of Christ downloaded to us, received by us, by faith. We call it justification. Who writes the law on our hearts? Christ by his spirit. It's verified in Hebrews 10.1. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my laws on their minds. Hebrews 10.1. In the gospel of the new covenant, Christ's obedience is both promised and given. We're only made right with God because of Christ's obedience. We're only allowed access to heaven because of Christ's obedience. We're only in the church because of Christ's obedience. We're only brought from death to life because of Christ's obedience. We're brought back from exile and sin because of Christ and his obedience. This is why he can say, as as I'll repeat when we get to the table in a moment, in Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Luke 22.20. And then Jesus, 
after he announced that, both died and rose again to fulfill all of the contractual obligations of the new covenant on both sides and to fulfill all the promises of the new covenant by granting to us these blessings. He didn't just give his body unto death. He gave us his person, himself. We get to know Christ. If we understand this properly, we understand all that's been given to us. He gave us obedience. He gave us righteousness. He gave us holiness. He gave us knowledge. I don't know how you could overstate the blessings of the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, we read, As often as we drink the cup, which is the cup of the new covenant, we do not merely remember his death, but we remember his person, himself. We dine with him. We sup with him. We draw close to him by faith, anticipating the time when we'll be with him. Hebrews 8.13, the new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete in some manner. Hebrews 9.15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus kept the covenant on our behalf and himself becomes the new covenant. We become the temple of God. Who were the parties of the old and new covenants? The old covenant parties were God and the people. In the new covenant, the parties of the agreement are God on the one side, God the Father, and God the Son on the other side. Where do we fit in? We're in Christ by faith. So all the tasks of the new covenant are completed by Christ. All the blessings of the new covenant are granted by God. There's a parallel between how God acted toward ancient Judah in bringing them back from Babylon and how God acts toward the worldwide church in Christ. Ancient Israel and ancient Judah have their counterpart in us, the New Testament church, which is Christ's body. Through the church, God calls all people to himself and invites them to enter the covenant by repentance and faith in Christ, which is why we reach each other and reach to the nations and to the end of the world with this good news. So what have we seen? That the covenant is unbreakable, the new covenant is internal, and the new covenant is universal. Let me seek to apply those same three points to us as we close. Number one, believe that people can change. How does this all apply to our lives? Believe that people can change. Do you believe people can change? The perennial problem of sin ever since Adam in the Garden of Eden has been once for all solved here. The biggest problem we have in the whole world is our inability to change. And yet God has solved that in the gospel of Christ, the new covenant, death and resurrection of Jesus. So start with yourself. Do you believe that you can change? Ask yourself, when I look at my life, do I see repeated sin? And if you're a little more honest, could you find recalcitrant sin, which is stubbornly repeated sin? Of course, I think you should say yes. So the question becomes, if you're honest with yourself, could I still belong to God? Yes. You see the power of it? It's the gospel. Christ gives us repentance and faith. And so we believe that we can change. We believe that we have been changed at the heart level. He took away our dead heart, gave us a new heart. He's written his word and his law on our hearts by his spirit. And so we believe that we can change. Next, we move to the aspect of looking at other people. Can this relative of mine or this coworker of mine change? Yes. We believe that in Christ, people can change. So think about the hope-building consequences for all of our lives, 
that come out of this passage, come out of the new covenant being announced. For example, can a marriage be saved? Yes, because the people in that marriage can change. Can a church be more than just people going through the motions of church services? Yes, because the people in that church can change by God's grace. Will God forgive us? Yes, that Christ cut a covenant for us that cost him his life on that cross and conquered death in order for us to be forgiven. It's the announcement there in verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. In addition, he puts his law and his word into our hearts by his spirit. He will be our God. He will forgive our sins. We believe that people can change because God is powerful and loving and the covenant has been made new in Christ. That's our first application. Our second application is this. Believe in grace for growth. The problem was not the law. And so the solution is not for us to try harder. The problem is our sin, and the solution is God's grace. So we believe in grace, not just for conversion, but we have a grace-based religion through and through. There's nothing wrong with the old covenant. What's wrong is the sin of the people. And so we have a grace-based idea of our own growth. Believe in grace for growth. Listen to Romans 7, 12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good in order that I might sin, that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Romans 7, 12 to 13. The problem is our sin. We're covenant breakers by nature. But God reaches in and changes our nature, changes our hearts changes our very internal person, our minds, our thinking, our perspective, our priorities, and our desires. God's grace is not only powerful enough to cleanse us from our sin in some ledger book in heaven so that we have access one day, but also to change our very natures and overhaul our living right now. Only by grace are we forgiven. Only by grace do we live holy lives. John, the Apostle John wrote this, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 7 to 9. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. God gives and we receive We must be careful not to turn back to ourselves, our own resources, our own determination to do better and be better people. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. That's works. That's a different covenant entirely. When we say that we believe in grace, it means we believe that we cannot contribute to our conversion, and it also means that we cannot contribute to our sanctification. We need God to save us, and we need God to sanctify us, to overhaul our lives. lives. We need God to give us the internal desire to stop sinning. I got to want different things, Lord. I keep doing it because I want to. I need to want different things. We need God to give us love for him, love for his word. We need God to give us fellowship with him, fellowship with others. In the new covenant, the problem of us wandering away from God is us not growing, us not becoming more holy is solved. God won't let us stagnate. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17 to the Father, saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
John 17, 17. So God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are working to give us the grace of growth in our spiritual lives. The problem of sin in Adam is solved. The problem of sin in the world is solved. The problem of sin in the people around me is solved. The problem of sin inside of me is solved. We believe in grace for conversion and we also believe in grace for growth. That's our second takeaway. Believe in grace for growth. And our third and last one, let your walk with Christ be internal and personal. Let your walk with Christ be internal and personal. I try to tell a story, especially with the last passage in mind, the previous sermon. University of Northern Iowa once offered a general art course that included a most unusual exercise for the class. The teacher brought to class a shopping bag filled with lemons and gave a lemon to each class member. The assignment was for each student to keep his lemon with him day and night, smelling handling, examining their lemon. Next time class met, without warning, the students were asked to all put their lemons back into the same bag. And then each student was asked to find his own lemon again. Surprisingly, most of the students did so easily. I tell you that story to say we carry around our troubles. We carry around our pain and we study it, and we get close to it, and we nuzzle up, and we cuddle with our lemon, our problems. The new covenant says we should be walking close to Jesus. Let me ask you this. When you come to God in times of personal prayer, or even when you come here for public worship, what are you listening for? We're to listen for Jesus Christ, who loves us personally. The new covenant exchange of persons means that Jesus was given over to the cross for us to be released from judgment for our sins. We ought to be most grateful and listening for that, nuzzling up to that, snuggling with that. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was giving us to God the Father. Hebrews 2.13, we get a future glimpse of that one fine day when Jesus brings many sons to glory. Jesus will one day present himself and at the same time present us to God the Father. And Jesus will take center stage of heaven and he will say this, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Hebrews 2.13. Here Jesus is quoting from the old covenant statement in Isaiah 8.18, now fulfilled in the new covenant by Jesus, meaning that just as surely as Jesus himself is accepted by God the Father, so also we are accepted by God the Father. Prior to that, God the Father gave us to Jesus in order to save us. And ever since Jesus finished saving us, he stands ready to present all of us to God the Father and to enter into his presence of God the Father forever. That's the gospel. That's what we listen for in church. That's what we need to do to replace the lemon that we're sucking on, that we're holding on to. Let this be personal for us. Let it be intimate for us. We have a father in heaven who would give his son for us. We have an older brother in Christ Jesus who's the head of the new covenant who would give himself for us. We have the body of Christ. Yes, we have pastors, elders, deacons, brothers and sisters in the Lord, but our walk has to be focused on Christ. Everyone else is simply a bonus gift that came from Christ. No matter how sweet those other persons are, the only one we truly need, the only one we worship when we're here, the only one we meet with in prayer, 
is the Lord Jesus Christ who can never be taken away. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Or James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let your walk with Christ be internal and personal. It's one of the lessons of this amazing passage. Let's pray. Father in heaven,